this week on Pointing the Way with Pastor Shad Smith. Pointing the Way, a ministry of the Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. We pray you will find direction for living as we look into the Word of God today. I'm preaching today on this subject. I can't wait to tell you about Jesus. I agree with old Mark today. That's kind of how I feel as I get to church today. We're in this Gospel of Mark, and this is one of the most exciting books in all of the Bible. It's really the shortest of the four Gospels, Brother Les, but it's the fast-paced version of the Gospel. This is a Gospel of action. If this were a movie, it wouldn't be a chick flick, it wouldn't be a romantic movie, it wouldn't be a horror movie, it'd be an action movie. It's fast. It's just one scene to the other. Mark's Gospel skips over a lot of the details that the other Gospel writers talk about. For example, you have nothing about the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. You don't read any of those long lists, those genealogies. None of that's in the Gospel of Mark. But all that's understandable. Mark's not that kind of a guy. He's not a historian like Matthew. He's not a physician like Luke. He's probably not even a theologian really like John. I can tell you what he is from reading through his book several times. He's a young man who's got a hot heart for Jesus. And he just can't wait to tell you about it. And that's why he just moves so fast. Uh, if you read the book from chapter 1 all the way through the end, there's a word, or a couple of words that you see 41 times in this book. It's either the word straightway or the word immediately. It's like he comes to the end of one thing and then straightway, immediately. His emphasis is not so much on the words of Jesus as much as it's on the emphasis of the activity, the action of Jesus. When Mark's preaching, if Mark had been a, a Baptist preacher, and I, I don't know that he wasn't, uh, he's been one of those preachers that kind of, I think, hacked when he preached. Do you remember those old, old-time preachers that preach and that, and that was that was because they were trying to catch their breath. That's what those old hacking preachers did. They, they, their mind was going so fast and their lungs couldn't keep up with them. And Brother Roy, you've heard them growing up. They, they come out before they had preached. I'm not making fun of them. That's just kind of the way Mark is. Mark, he would, he would he, before he could catch his breath, he's already straightway into the next story. Because he can't wait to tell us what Jesus did. You know, I mentioned last Sunday that... Uh, you know, there used to be a fad. What would Jesus do? Remember that fad? Everybody had the little necklaces and things, WWJD. Uh, when you come to the Gospel of Mark, the question is not WWJD, what would Jesus do? The question really is WDJD. What did Jesus do? There's no speculation. In fact, I'm not critical of WWJD if it gets you thinking about Jesus, so be it. But you don't have to speculate about what he did. Just go to the Gospel of Mark. You will read what he did. So today, when you leave out there, I don't know if y'all wear these. If you don't, get them and give them to your grandkids. But they've got everybody one of these little rubber bracelets. 
And it says on the side of it, WDJD. What did Jesus do? That's what I want us to focus on this year. What did he do? And find out what he did and live the Christian life. Let him live his life. Let him do those things in you and through you. Mark is going to show us what he did, the action of his ministry, how he's the servant of God that came from heaven to this earth and suffered to be our Savior. If there was a key verse to the Gospel of Mark, and I think there is, it's probably Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve. Jesus came as the servant for you and I to do the will of the Father and to serve us as far as to go all the way to the cross and die for our sins. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about this guy named Mark, or John Mark, as he's known in the New Testament. Unlike Matthew, Luke, and, or unlike Matthew and John, Mark didn't walk with Jesus for those three years during his ministry. Now, Mark probably didn't come to faith in Christ until after Christ was ascended back to heaven and already gone. And it's probably uh, likely that Mark came to faith in the Lord as a result of his association with Simon Peter. All that Mark knows about uh, Jesus seems to come from Peter and Paul. And some people, however, believe that his gospel was the first of the four gospels written. I'm not sure if his came first, but it was probably either his or Matthew's, the earliest gospels that were written. But you can read a lot about Jesus and what he did from the gospel of Mark, his actions. But you can read about the guy that was in such a hurry to tell you about it in the book of Acts. You went through that in Sunday school, many of you did in Acts chapter 12, you learn that John Mark was from Jerusalem. He had a mother named Mary, not to be confused with any of the other Marys of the New Testament, but her name also was Mary. And in Acts 12, you read about Mark being at a prayer meeting. You remember that prayer meeting where Simon Peter had been in jail and they were over there praying for him? And then all of a sudden there comes a knock at the door and they can't believe that the guy they prayed to get out of jail is the one knocking on their door? Ain't that kind of like us sometimes we pray and then God answers it? We scratch our hands and say, was that really God? Of course it was. Of course it was. Well, John Mark was at that prayer meeting. Later on, we read that John Mark went on a missionary journey. He went on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas. The funny thing about that mission trip, however, is somewhere out there a long way, about halfway on the trip, Mark got a little homesick. You know, he's a young Christian and he got away from home, and maybe he got to missing Mama's home cooking. Something about it, he didn't like being out there, and he bailed out midway. He came back home. Uh, in fact, the next time Paul and Barnabas got ready to go on a, a, a missionary journey, Mark decides, I want to go again, and Paul says, uh-uh, no, no. Paul was real serious about the mission thing. He didn't want anybody slowing him down, and... and Mark was a little bit too much baggage for Paul, so Paul said, no, Mark, you're not going with us. Well, Paul and Barnabas kind of got at each other sideways with one another over that, so much that, I mean, they didn't break fellowship, but they did break partnership in the ministry, and Barnabas says, I'll take my nephew, by the way, which is John Mark, and then Paul says, I'll take old Silas. Of course, Paul and Silas get into a lot of stuff. That's how that, that came about. 
And, uh, but later on, when Paul's getting close to death, Paul writes Timothy a letter. And in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, I want you to come see me over here in Rome. Come see me in jail. I want you to bring the books, my books, bring the parchments, the scriptures, and the books, and all the things, and bring my coat when you come. And hey, bring John Mark, because he's profitable for the ministry. So whatever hang-ups this young Christian had, John Mark, he got over it. He got a second chance. And by the way, that's not the theme of the message today. But how many of you are grateful to God that when you blow it, God will give you another chance? And I thank God for that today. Well, John Mark got another chance, and this next chance, he doesn't blow this chance because he comes clean out of that so hard-hearted for Jesus that he probably was the first one to write a gospel, and he wanted to get his copy out first because he was just so excited about it. So now we begin this journey in 2020 through the gospel of Mark, with this young man that can't wait to tell us about Jesus, and I can't either. So walk with me through these scriptures today. Notice in the first eight verses, Mark gives us, first of all, what I simply call the introduction of Jesus. Look at it again in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I told you Mark's gospel was a gospel of action. We're not into the action part yet. This is just the introduction. But notice how brief an introduction that is. You think about that introduction. Notice how quickly Mark covers all the background stuff in that little 12-word statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me tell you what he's got in there. That involves the birth of Jesus and Gabriel's announcement and then fleeing into Egypt and Herod killing all the babies and, and the genealogy of Jesus and Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old. All of that is covered in 12 words. Mark says, I've got time to tell you about all that. I can't wait to tell you about Jesus. I'm not worried about his family tree. I want to tell you about Jesus. He tells us in that first verse about his person. What is his person? His personal name? Jesus. That's his earthly name. And then, of course, he tells us of his position. What's his position? Christ. Christ is his position. That word Christ means anointed one. Messiah. That's where that comes from. And then, of course, he tells us about his power. What is his power? He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. That's how... Mark presents Jesus. I told you there's no long genealogy because Mark's writing to the Romans. Matthew puts that genealogy uh, in there because in Matthew because Matthew was writing to the Jews and pedigrees all important to the Jews, you know. But the Romans don't care about that, and neither does Mark. He, he just he just tells them about Jesus because that's what they want to know. They want to know who Jesus is and what he did. That's kind of like me when I got saved. I didn't care who Jesus is. 13th generation granddaddy was. All I wanted to know is who is this man and what did he do for me? And so he goes straight to the point. He introduces him. Now, some of the introduction does include some references to the Old Testament, not for the sake uh, of, of the Jewish pedigree or anything, but simply to validate that he is indeed the Christ that he says he is. Notice in verse 2 how Mark talks about what I want you to note here is he talks about the prophecy of his forerunner. 
Now, when Jesus came to this world, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. It shouldn't have been a surprise at all. The Bible talks about the Messiah coming all through the Old Testament. That was all through the Old Testament. It said that the Messiah was coming. But it also said in the Old Testament that when Messiah, right before he came, it says that he would have a forerunner. Somebody would come and, 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 and prepare the way. Somebody that would come and uh, bring uh, the star to the stage, so to speak. And so, uh, in verse uh, number two, in verse number three, uh, it gives us the prophecy of this forerunner. This forerunner. You know, I was thinking this week about the word forerunner. And you know, over in Hebrews chapter six, it says that Jesus has entered into heaven today as the forerunner. You know, isn't it interesting that way back here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had a forerunner. Today, Jesus is the forerunner. You say, well, well, that don't hardly make sense. Well, think about it for a second. Jesus had a forerunner. That forerunner got the world ready for the arrival of Jesus. Now, Jesus is getting heaven ready for the arrival of me. Hallelujah. He's the forerunner. Well, here, he's not the forerunner. In this text, he has a forerunner. His forerunner, of course, is, is in answer to a prophecy. The prophet's predicted. It's all important that we talk about this forerunner because if the Bible said he was going to have a forerunner and he didn't have a forerunner, then, then we're not looking at the right Messiah. He's not the Messiah if he doesn't have a forerunner. Scripture prophesied. Uh, if there hadn't been a forerunner, there'd been no need for an introduction of Jesus, and you wouldn't be able to trust your Old Testament. But John the Baptist is indeed this forerunner, and Mark tells us that by giving us two verses from the Old Testament. Mark, Mark tells us in verse number two, as it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. That's a, that's a direct quote from Malachi chapter three, verse one. And then look at verse four. Or excuse me, verse 3. This is a quote from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. In fact, if in your Bible you see it in all capital letters like that, that means that it's, it's a quote pulled from the Old Testament. It's kind of like a, like a footnote. He's citing the Old Testament. Verse 3 says, The voice from one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, so this prophecy, Mark has no problem looking at those two verses and saying, Well, that's talking about John the Baptist. And so we take Mark and his word here that this is indeed John the Baptist. And we're going to see him establish that starting in verse 4 as he now moves from the prophecy of his forerunner to talk to us about the preaching of his forerunner. John the Baptist is introduced in verse number 4. Now I want to tell you something about John the Baptist. I can't wait to meet Brother Lee. I, Brother Les, I can't wait to meet John the Baptist. Because, Brother Ron, I believe John the Baptist is the original country camp meeting preacher. I really believe he is. Verse number four tells us he made Brother Roy his pulpit out there in the wilderness. And his message, his message was the message of repentance. Now, he's the forerunner of Jesus. Where does he go to announce that Jesus is coming? He goes out to the middle of nowhere, out to Bethbara, out to nowhere by the Jordan River, down at the bottom of the Judean wilderness, out there close to the Dead Sea. Nothing is out there. 
The only reason you'd go there today is if you were on the Holy Land tour bus. That's the only reason to go down there. And I've been there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I was thinking this week, you know, if Jesus uh, were coming the first time in 2020, and the Father gave that task of being his forerunner to us Baptist preachers, let me tell you what we'd do. We'd get together a committee of preachers, and we'd figure out how we're going to capture this thing on Facebook. We'd figure out where we're going to advertise, and we'd say, now, Jesus, if you want to make full, take full advantage of coming here, we'll probably need to set this thing up in the middle of Times Square. I mean, every day there's a million or more people right there. All the news outlets are right there in New York. They'll capture it all. But that's not the way John got the world ready for Jesus at all. He, He goes out to the wilderness. Why did he go to the wilderness? Well, there's two reasons he went to the wilderness. Number one, he couldn't go anywhere but the wilderness. He said, well, how do you figure that? Well, the prophecy said that's where the forerunner had to go. So he didn't go to the wilderness because he thought, well, this is the best place. He might have thought this would be better done in Jerusalem where all the people are. Uh, but he goes out there to the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Well, the only thing I could think is the wilderness is a symbol of where the sinners really are. That's where we are before we meet Jesus. We're in the wilderness. And Jesus came to sinners. Verse 4 tells us that John preached about repentance for the remission. That word means forgiveness of sins. Oh, John the Baptist, Brother Barry, he wouldn't be real popular today, would he? He's a repentance preacher. He goes out there to the wilderness, and he tells people the only way you can meet God is by repentance. And I say amen, Brother John. He's getting them ready to receive Christ. And by the way, you cannot receive Christ until you repent, until you turn from your sin. People say, oh, you, you can't preach like that anymore. Uh, that's too old-fashioned. Well, that's the way John preached. Well, you'll never grow a church preaching that way. That, that, that message is not done. That's, that's the old style of preaching. You can't get people in with, with a message like that. I don't know. You read verse 5, and it says they, that there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem. I mean, they, listen, they didn't have a tour bus to hop on in Jerusalem. It was a camel or a pair of sandals to get them from Jerusalem down there to the wilderness. And they come walked all the way down there to see John. And when they got down there, they heard his message, they confessed their sins, and they got baptized. You say, well... John must have been some more charismatic speaker then. Well, I don't know about that because when you get to verse 6, verse 6 don't really claim as the charismatic type either. Look at verse number 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of the skin about his loins. Look at what he's wearing. He's got on a fuzzy sport coat and a leather belt. I mean, not exactly a fashion statement. And for some reason, it tells us in verse 6, and I don't know why it tells us this, but it's inspired of God, it says that he, he had a diet of locusts and wild honey. At least he had his protein and his carbs, you know? He had locusts and honey. Let me tell you something about this old boy. He introduced the world to Jesus and shook the powers of hell out there in the wilderness. God give us some simple preachers like John the Baptist that maybe they're not fast 
fashionable or charismatic by the world standard, but they'll get the world ready to meet Jesus. That's what he does. Notice how humble he is in verse 7. He says, There cometh one mightier than I after me. The lights of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stick down and unloose. You know, some people suggest that when all of Judea and they of Jerusalem came, and it says all of them came, that that could have been as many as 300,000 people came down to the wilderness to hear this guy preach. If that is true, and I think it's possible, then I really like what I hear of him in verse 7. Because when you start getting that many people coming out to hear a preacher, let me tell you very quickly, that preacher's head can get about that big. You with me? But not John the Baptist. He keeps things in perspective. He keeps his humility. And he says, let me tell you about this one that's coming. I'm not out of here to build an empire for me. I'm here to get you ready for the one that's coming. And I'll tell you, his shoes, I'm not even worthy to get down and tie the shoes of this man that's coming. What humility. You know, he modeled what the people needed to have. One of the reasons men and women won't get saved today is they haven't got humble enough to get saved. They don't think they need a Savior. But John says, I'm unworthy. I, I need this man. I'm unworthy. And then he says in verse 8, I've indeed baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was getting people ready to meet God. John, it hadn't been revealed yet, I don't believe to John, yet that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, you have to keep in mind, these two were cousins. These two were cousins. They probably grew up around each other, at least on the holidays, you know, family get-togethers and stuff. But, but he's watched Jesus live, but Jesus hasn't been publicly introduced. That's happening here, and John is the forerunner. But John says, I'm out here baptizing with water. Just trying to get ready, get people to repent and get ready to meet the Lord. Because when he comes, you can't know him unless you repent. You can't go to heaven. You can't know God without repentance. It's not Judaism. It's not religion. It's got to be repentance that will get you out with God. He says, I'm out here baptizing you with water. But I want y'all to know that my baptism here." This is just a symbol. I indeed baptize you with water because that's all I got to baptize you with. But there is one coming. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. In other words, this water over here in the muddy Jordan, and that section of the Jordan is muddy. I, I got a t shirt that I wore in this section of the river before they're doing this baptism. And I tell you, I ain't wearing it this morning because I don't do good with brown t shirts. I mean, it's muddy Jordan. And he says, I can get you wet, and I can get you covered in mud. Let me tell you, the one that's coming, honey, he's going to baptize you from the inside out. He's going to do on the inside what I'm trying to symbolize on the outside. And how many of you are grateful today that our Lord is one that can change you from the inside out? Religion. Religion tries to change a man from the outside in, put a, put a new suit on that guy. But Jesus says that man don't need a new suit. He needs a new man in that old suit. And that's what he does. He changes us from the inside out. That's the preaching and the 
message of the forerunner. And he comes to introduce us to Jesus. Now in verse number 9, John moves straight into here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. Do you imagine you know, how they break in on the news? We now interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Here's the special report, the breaking news. He takes us now down to these waters of the Jordan. And we see number two, what I call the immersion of Jesus. The immersion of Jesus. I'm talking about his baptism. Baptism. I talked to one of my Methodist friends this week, and I told him, I said, by the way, uh, the second point of my sermon this week for all my Methodist friends is the immersion of Jesus. <laughs> He's not sprinkling him down here by the Jordan. He, he goes down into the water, okay? Now, let me say a word about baptism, because we're fixing to talk about that. And, and uh, before I get into talking about the Lord's baptism, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Baptism, water baptism, will not save you. Okay? If you walk into those waters as a lost person, and we dunk you under the water, you come out of those waters a dripping wet lost guy. If you get hit by a truck out there and die, you're going to come out of those waters and go straight to hell. You understand? Baptism will not save you. Now, some people, most people understand that in the church, and they say, well, since baptism don't save you, the main thing is to be saved. And I say, yes. Some people think, well, if baptism don't save you, then it's not really all that important. But that's where I want to stop right here and, and illustrate to you that if baptism is important to Jesus, and he wasn't even a sinner, then baptism ought to be important to you. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. We believe that took place in a spot about two miles uh, east of Jericho in a place called Bethabar. It's also the same place where the children of Israel crossed into the Promised Land. I took our group there when we were in Israel in December. Jesus comes from Nazareth up in Galilee down to Bethabara to be baptized. Now, let me just stop right here and say that if Jesus Christ walked, that, that's about 60 miles. If Jesus Christ walked 60 miles to get a baptism that he didn't even have to have, it wouldn't hurt some of y'all to walk 60 feet to get you one. Y'all all right? I mean, if it was that important to Jesus and you've never been baptized, listen, I don't know who this is for today, but if you've been saved and you've never been baptized, or maybe you were baptized when you was little and then realized a few years ago that you wasn't really saved and you prayed over there and you never asked the Lord to save you and you hadn't got your baptism on your right side of your salvation because you don't think it's important, let me say, if it was important enough for Jesus to walk 60 miles to do it, don't you think it's about time you get your baptism straight? Now, Baptism, for us, it's an open proclamation that we believe the Scripture, what it says about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we believe the gospel and we're unashamed of it, that we've repented of sins and trusted our Lord as our Savior. John was, John was baptizing, and he baptized Jesus, and the reason Mark tells us about this baptism is twofold. Number one, he tells us about 
the baptism of Jesus, number one, because of the agreement that took place at his immersion. The agreement. Now, we already know Jesus never sinned. He had nothing to repent of, but he got baptized. Why? Well, his baptism did two things. First of all, it was Jesus' way of agreeing with everything that John was preaching. He, he agreed, he validated John's ministry by going down there and getting baptized. It was also his way of identifying with the people that he came to save. It's a foreshadowing, really, of his death and resurrection. He agreed with John's ministry that all men need to repent because they're sinners. So there's an agreement that takes place between Jesus and the ministry of John there. But Mark also tells us, not only, not only to show us this agreement, but he, he gives us this because of the announcement that took place. The announcement, mark that down, the announcement that took place. You got the agreement, you got the announcement, but right in between the two, you got what I call the anointing. The anointing. Look at the next part. In verse number 10. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now this is the anointing that takes place at his baptism. Now, when I say anointing, I don't mean that Jesus wasn't God before this day. Or that the Holy Spirit wasn't there in his life leading him and with him all the way. I, I believe I believe that was that was always present from, from the time he was uh, conceived in the womb. However, I believe right here what you have is a special manifestation of the Holy Ghost of God for the purpose of anointing Jesus for the work of the ministry. This is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Right here, as he begins his public ministry, the Spirit descends like a dove right there on Jesus. You know, why a dove? Why not, a, why not a, an eagle? That's powerful and majestic. You ever talk about these ball things? Love birds. Philadelphia what? Eagles. The Atlanta what? Falcons. Falcons. Right, that's the wrong season, but right, right sport. You know, uh, uh, the, uh, the basketball, the Atlanta Hawks, right? Who among us says go Ducks? It doesn't really scream, you know, athleticism. Ducks are Jesus wasn't coming this first time to say, I'm here to take over the world. No. Jesus comes in peace. Offering man peace with God. With God. You know, it was a dove that attended the first baptism. When was that? All the way back in the book of Genesis. And that was a baptism... It was a different kind of baptism, but it was a water baptism. It was a global water baptism. A baptism, not of 
profession of salvation or a baptism of repentance, but it was a baptism of judgment. Do you remember that Noah sent out that dove and it finally came back? What happened? It's a little olive branch. And then he sent it out again, never came back. You ever thought about what might have happened to that little dove? Maybe that little dove, and I believe that was a special dove. I mean, what dove goes and just brings the olive branch back to Noah? And I, I mean, just, I believe it was a God-ordained bird. Special bird. I often wonder, what happened to the little bird? He, he flies away and you never see him again. Maybe he's flying and he's still looking for a place to land. He flies down through the Old Testament he sees Abraham and he says, I can land on No, I can't land on him. He lied about his wife being his sister. Or he comes a little further and he says, well, there's Moses. Maybe I can land. No. No, no. Moses, he lost his temper. Oh, no, 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 no. Not, not, not Moses. He couldn't go into the promised land. He goes flies a little further and says, well, there's David. And he comes out and he's about to land on David. And then he sees David and Bathsheba. He pulls back up. And he flies and he flies until one day down in southern Israel and he's flying along. And he sees something happening down by a body of water. And he says, there he is. There's the Messiah. And the Holy Ghost descends down like a dove on Jesus and rests on God's humble servant. Jesus didn't become the Messiah. He is the Messiah. But at the baptism, he's anointed, he's touched by the Spirit of God for the work his Father seemed to do. I believe that's why Mark tells us about the baptism. I also believe it's because of the announcement that took place there. Listen to verse 11. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right here, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father speaks from heaven. It's one of the only places in Scripture where you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost at the same spot at the same time. Right there. These people that don't believe in Trinitarianism and don't believe in the Trinity, take them right there. All three in one are right there. The Father speaks from heaven and says, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, last night I was laying in bed me and my wife was talking about this scripture, and I told her, I said, you know, that's an interesting statement to come at this point in the life of Jesus. Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Pleased with what? You know, from age 12 up to this point, we know nothing about the life of the Lord. You remember the last time we've seen him is 12 years old over there at the temple. You remember that story when he, when he gets left over there? Probably was brought there for his bar mitzvah, and then, and then he, he's, he's left behind. Imagine that. And, and then from 12 to 13 to 14, 15, 16, all the way up to 30, we know nothing about him. Or do we? We know one thing about him. Whatever 12 to 30 was, the Father was pleased with him. We know that about him. I don't know what it was, but the Father was pleased with it because he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, from 12 to 30, 
He's still the sinless, perfect Son of God. The same one he was when he came into the world. And all this at his immersion, his baptism, is the validation, the proof that Jesus is exactly who verse number one claims him to be. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the one the scriptures prophesied, and we're going to see him do a lot of amazing stuff. And man, I'm telling you, when we get past this message and we get on into the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to 16, I mean, it's going to go like automatic bullets coming out of a gun. Mark can't wait to tell us about Jesus, but before he starts that, he says, No. When we get over there to where he's raising people from the dead and, and he's doing all this great stuff, I want you to remember this is no average man doing this. This is the God man. This is the one sent from heaven. We're not going to argue later alone about whether or not he's God in the flesh. We're going to establish that from then on. Then, when he walks on water, you'll say, well, of course he walks on water. He's God. Well, when he calms the storm, we're going to say, of course he calms the storm. He's God. When he raises the dead and heals the blinded eyes, we're going to say, of course he does that. He's God. Now, I say to you today, beloved, you got a need in your life that you wonder, and can he need it? Can he do it? Will he answer the prayer? Of course he will. He's God. The only reason you're doubting is maybe because you're just not real sure as to whether or not he's really God. Well, Mark establishes that right from the get-go. He's God in the flesh. At his immersion, all of that is validated. And by the way, if he's God, he's the only one that can save him. That's why we're not here today celebrating Muhammad or Buddha or, or, or anybody else. We're here lifting that name that's above every name, the only name that can save him. Now, look with me very quickly. We come to the end of the message today. Mark shares with us a word about the impeccability of Jesus. Now, that's a big word. <laughs> I probably only used it because it started with I. It says what I wanted to say. I like to alliterate the messages, but I had a preacher friend tell me one time, he says, you know, you alliterate everything, don't you? You talk to your wife in alliteration, can you please pass the pepper, you know, what stuff like that? I said, why? That's what I try to alliterate. He said, well, I'm going to tell you. I said, you alliterate? And I said, he said, no. I said, why not? He said, three reasons. It's silly, stupid, and superfluous. You know? so, anyway. Let me tell you what impeccability means. Impeccability means sinlessness or incapability to sin. When we talk about his impeccability, that means it's in, it, I'm not impeccable. I'm not, you're not impeccable. But Jesus, he's impeccable. That means it, means it is impossible for this man to sin. It's impossible. After the baptism of Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, this has been a great, great moment. We talked about the temptation of Jesus a few weeks ago. This baptism is a high point in Jesus' life. I mean, it's the kickoff, it's the grand opening, it's the breaking news of His ministry starting. But you know, after all the fireworks and baptism and all, all that in the Dove coming down, spirit coming down like a dove, and the Father speaking from heaven. After that, you would think this is a moment worthy of a party, a celebration, a parade, something. But there's no party, there's no reception, there's no celebration, there's no autograph session afterwards, nothing like that. No. Immediately, after the Father speaks, Jesus is led away 
into the wilderness. To be tempted of the devil. Now I told you last week, you watch for the devil after a high place in your life, after a momentous, victorious experience. You watch out. The devil will be lurking around to try to knock you down a notch or two when you get on a spiritual high. Well, here he comes, right here after this great moment of his baptism. Jesus goes out into the wilderness deeper. The elder went to Israel with us. Do you remember when we drove that road going down to Bethlehem, down toward Jericho? That road where on both sides of it, on the other end of it was the valley of the shadow of death. Y'all remember that. But when you got down along that road, I mean, I'm amazed that there was cell service down through there. There was great cell service in Israel all over the place. But I, I don't know why. I didn't see a cell tower anywhere, and it's just rocky and desolate. No trees, no bushes, no water. You get down there, there's the Jordan River, and it dumps its living water down into the Dead Sea. And then from there, it's just dead, dead, dead everywhere. I'm just out in the deep, deep wilderness. That's where Jesus goes. Out into that very wilderness. Somewhere out there, he is out there, and he goes out there, and he's tempted. Not to prove or to be tested as to whether or not he was sin. That's not what the temptation was about at all, ladies and gentlemen. Some people say, oh, thank God he didn't sin. Oh, if he had sinned, boy, salvation plan would have been ruined. You missed the whole point of the temptation of Christ. It was not to see whether or not he would sin. It was to prove to us that he is the impeccable Christ that cannot sin. There, there was not a chance at all that he would have ever seen out there. But he tempted. He tempted. And we see his impeccability, his incapability to sin. And it's demonstrated in a couple of ways. Number one, it's demonstrated or it was proven by his obedience. Look at verse number 12. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. The Spirit driveth. That's a strong word, isn't it? Now, I was reading the other gospel accounts, and uh, like, for instance, um, he, he, in the King James, Mark uses the word drive like, get him out there quick. You've got to keep in mind, what's Mark the gospel of? Action, action. Let's get him out there quick. Let me, let's tell, tell you about it. Uh, other gospel writers tell us that the Spirit led him. Led him. It's not a contradiction. Mark's just getting us to this place fast. Okay? Matthew chapter 4 says the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. Led, drove, however you want to explain him getting there. What's important is that we see that when Jesus is prompted to go into that wilderness, and what does going into that wilderness mean, David? It means you're not going to eat for the next 40 days. How many of you, if I said, hop in my car after church, I'm about to take you and dump you off somewhere where you won't eat for the next 40 days? I got any takers in the room? Anybody hopping in and buckling up with me? No, of course you're not. But the Spirit of God led Jesus there. And Jesus, being God, knowing everything, well, when, he, when, he, when he gets there, he, he, says, he says, the Spirit's leading me, He's leading me, and... I'll go. He's obedient to the Spirit of God. Now listen, 
He had to go because in his perfection, he would never do anything contrary to the Spirit of God. He would never do anything contrary to the Spirit of God. Why? Because he's impeccably sinless. His obedience proved that. But the last thing I'll show you today is that it was proven by his overcoming. Verse 13 says he was tempted 40 days in that wilderness. Mark tells us something the other gospel writers don't tell us. They tell us about temptation number one, temptation number two, temptation number three. Mark tells us that for 40 days he was tempted. What were those other temptations? Bible doesn't tell us. But it was 40 days non-stop. One right after another, after another. The devil tried that many times to sabotage the salvation plan that Jesus never sinned. Why? How many of you, how many of you, when the devil sets his sights on you and just one, two, three, four, five, and he can't get you, but, but the 50th time he gets you. You know, the 51st time he gets you. Why? Because you're not impeccable. You're not incapable of sinning. They could have stayed out there for 400 days and Jesus wouldn't have sinned. He wouldn't have sinned. He overcame temptation because he's God. Now me, I can't overcome temptation quite like that in my flesh because my flesh is weak and I'm not God. But listen to me, beloved. I've got the one living on the inside of me who can, who has the power to overcome. And when I yield my life to him and surrender, and that's why we talk so much about the importance of that, when you yield and surrender to Christ, you can, Christ in you can overcome temptation. His overcoming proves him to be the righteous Son of God in the flesh. Mark's going to tell us all about it, what he did while he was on the earth. And the first thing he wants us to know is Jesus. He's the one about the prophesied. He's the one who identified with us. He's the one who certified by God himself to be the Savior. He's the only one who can Thank you for joining us today. Pointing the Way is a ministry of Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. If you would like to contact the ministry, you may write Pointing the Way, 120 Northside Church Road, Dallas, Georgia, 30132. Or visit us on the web at www.northsidedallas.com. Until next time, open God's Word to point the way for direction in your life.